0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 7th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, it's an interesting time for physicians who are counseling patients about COVID. For one thing, there are two new vaccines that were rapidly authorized last week and that are already available to patients. These were approved very quickly even before human data were available. And at the same time, we have treatments available for those newly diagnosed with COVID. And today we published some data that might help clinicians decide how to use those drugs. So let's start with the vaccines. The FDA granted emergency use authorization to new bivalent COVID vaccines. So what are these vaccines?
1: Steve, these vaccines that are being produced by both Pfizer and Moderna are very similar to the existing mRNA vaccines. Both contain the original spike protein-derived antigen sequence that was in the vaccines we've been using since late 2020. However, they also contain a second sequence, one that's derived from the spike protein, but contains several mutations that are found in the ba 5 strains of SARS-CoV-2. So this vaccine is a twofer with both the old and the new antigens.
2: So, Steve and Eric, you know the challenge here is guessing which variants of concern will dominate in the next month or year. And then how do we think about which sequences we want in a vaccine to anticipate what is likely to be the community circulating variant? And it's a challenge because as we've all witnessed since last November, there was BA 1 emerged, BA 4.5, and now we're looking at BA 2.75, 4.6. And so how do we leverage our public health information to figure out which strains are likely to be the dominant circulating ones so that we can best enhance our vaccines in targeting them.
0: The striking thing about the process for authorizing these vaccines was that there are very limited data. In fact, the manufacturers presented no human data using these specific vaccines, although they did have animal data that addressed vaccine efficacy. So how unusual is this, and do you think it
1: makes sense as a process? It is unusual, but it's not unprecedented. The FDA doesn't require human trials for each new seasonal flu vaccine. There are two reasons for this. First, there are decades of experience with these vaccines, and the rather small changes to the antigens that are made each year are unlikely to produce new safety signals. Second, there's a limited time between identifying the likely new influenza strains and the need to get shots into people's arms. Adding human trials would delay that. So that's very similar to the rationale that's being used for the new COVID authorizations. The vaccine's being rolled out when the cognate strain, ba 5 is still widely circulating. However, if we were to wait for another few months to have human data, the vaccine might only be of historical interest. The safety question, though, is a little different. There's a huge experience with the mRNA vaccines against COVID with hundreds of millions of doses administered. And the differences between the old and new antigens are relatively small. The hope is that this means that the new vaccines are likely to be safe. Remember, a similar bivalent vaccine containing the original sequence and a different Omicron sequence, that derived from BA1, has been in clinical testing, and there were no concerning safety signals, though with a relatively small number of participants.
2: Eric, I think that, as you point out, we need to look at the safety of the platform, and then the likelihood that it'll be active against the circulating strains. And over the last year and a half, billions of people have received the mRNA platform between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And in addition, studies have looked at beta variant vaccines, BA1, the first version of Omicron variant vaccines, and now, Steve, as you point out, the BA4.5 variant vaccine. Which the last one, BA four or five, the human data are not yet available, though the studies are active. In terms of the prior, we have a pretty good sense that with billions receiving the vaccine, and then with hundreds to thousands receiving the variant vaccines, that is the beta and the BA1, safety signals have not been seen. The newer versions behave in a similar fashion as the older version. And that is very reassuring that this platform from a safety standpoint is behaving as expected. And as we make variant vaccines, and Eric, as you point out, a variant vaccine is actually an incredibly small change in the sequence, but that it behaves as the parent does from a safety and tolerability standpoint. The immunogenicity question is something we're going to have to think a lot about in terms of the nature of the immune response and then ultimately in terms of how that translates into
0: community benefit. So right, that's the next question. You've been talking about safety, immunogenicity, but how well are these new vaccines likely to work?
1: You're right, Steve, it is a question. The hope is that these will induce higher antibody levels, as has been seen in animal studies, and that these will correlate with better protection against disease, and hopefully even protection against infection in people. We won't know if that's true, however, until we see the results of the clinical trials. Because the new boosters contain the original antigen, it's unlikely that they will be any worse than the original boosters. So there doesn't seem to be much of a downside for efficacy.
2: I think it's important, Eric, as you point out, that these are bivalent vaccines, and there's the original sequence that's half, and then there's a new sequence that's the other half. And the two vaccines that are emerging for clinical use have the second half being either BA1 or BA45. I point that out, as in Europe and other parts of the world, the Omicron or BA1 variant is part of the bivalent, while in the US, it looks like BA45 will be part of the bivalent. Whether or not there is enough of a difference between BA1 or BA4.5 in the immune response that's elicited that matters is unclear. We have the in vitro data to understand the level of immune response and how well it neutralizes different variants in the test tube and there are different ways to look at these data, but both of the Omicron variant containing vaccines enhance neutralizing antibodies in vaccine recipients to the Omicron variants. So that's important to understand. What's also important, Steve, is understanding the clinical data of efficacy, which is going to be very hard. And as Eric pointed out, the speed of the spread of the virus limits how much time we can wait and how much data we must have to be able to move these vaccines forward because the virus is moving so fast that if we want to have vaccines that are relevant to the circulating strain we have to move quickly to develop, manufacture, distribute, and deploy the newer vaccines. This is being deployed in the context of prior vaccination and prior infection, so there's a fair amount of hybrid immunity. We also have to think carefully when we look at efficacy, since it's unlikely to come from a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, but rather from real-world effectiveness data. And this will then be capturing what's captured typically through healthcare systems, which is likely more significant illness and not necessarily a home test positive that may or may not get reported.
1: Lindsay, you bring up a very good point, and it points out a bit of luck that we've had with this one. The planning for this vaccine occurred back in the spring when we didn't know what the circulating strain would be. In fact, it turns out that the majority of virus circulating right now is a pretty good match to the antigen in the new bivalent vaccine. So this is the time to get it. And in fact, we've talked a bit about safety concerns, which I think we both agree are fairly minimal, and about efficacy, which we both agree is not going to be any worse than the old vaccine. And based on that, I've already voted with my feet and gotten a dose of the new bivalent vaccine.
2: Another consideration, because Eric, I think that as you've pointed out, the new vaccine Shouldn't be worse and likely will be better. And so it makes sense to boost with it. And as we think about going forward and understanding how well the new vaccines work, we may have to change our definitions of what we're looking for. And it may not be the mild illness, and it may move to hospitalizations for COVID, not with COVID, and probably wastewater surveillance as a way to know community transmission, given that testing has changed so much for sociologic rather than medical reasons that the ability to compare data through time for mild and moderate illness will be very difficult. And so, Steve, I think these will be part of what we'll be looking for as we go forward to understand how the virus is spreading and how vaccination may be impacting it.
0: So with that, let's turn to treatment for those who are already infected with the virus. For outpatients, we've discussed three treatments, Ramdesivir a drug whose use has been limited by its IV formulation, molnupiravir, which appears to be less potent, and nirmatrelvir, a drug given together with ritonavir for pharmacologic reasons. In outpatients, nirmatrelvir has gotten the lion's share of use. And today we published a study that looked at each of these drugs and their in vitro efficacy against some currently circulating
1: strains. So what did we learn? We've published several studies from this Japanese group that have looked systematically At the in vitro susceptibilities of the new major variants to all of the available antivirals, including the small molecules you mentioned, Steve, and the monoclonal antibodies. In this week's report, they looked at the ancestral strain and three different Omicron-related variants, BA2, which is no longer circulating, BA5, the major strain in most areas, and BA275, a strain that has been increasing in some places. To summarize, all the Omicron strains have decreased binding to monoclonals other than bebtilovimab, though the magnitude of that decrease varies greatly with different antibodies. However, all remain susceptible to the three small molecule antivirals with little change in the concentration needed for inhibition of viral replication.
2: I think that what we're seeing with the monoclonals is reminiscent of what we've developed over the last many decades with antimicrobial susceptibility for bacteria. It's not exactly the same, but conceptually, our ability in the test tube to see how active a monoclonal is against a given strain. And this is very useful because it can be done quickly and reproducibly. This affords us a quick insight when new variants emerge, what the likely activity is in the in vitro, the test tube model for given monoclonals. Whether or not this translates to clinical success or failure is not directly measured. But many of us believe that monoclonals that have no activity or remarkably decreased activity against a circulating strain is unlikely to be active. So this affords us the opportunity to rapidly determine which mAbs, monoclonal antibodies, We should be thinking about using as different strains emerge, and whether strains emerge globally in a uniform fashion, as we've witnessed over the last two years, or regionally with different variants predominating, may direct us in how we think about the use of monoclonals with new variants.
0: One of the limitations to using nematravir has been reports of rebound viral shedding, and in some cases, symptoms, after the person completes five days of therapy. Perhaps most prominently, President Biden was reported to have positive antigen tests after they had turned negative, once he'd had neurmatroviral therapy, and Tony Fauci redeveloped symptoms. So today we published two letters that address this issue. Let's talk first about the case series. What happened to the individuals there?
1: This is a report of 13 cases of rebound after neurometrov therapy. All of these individuals had been vaccinated and had received booster doses. The cases are different from one another, all started with symptomatic disease. Most, but not all, had negative antigen tests after completing therapy, but all had subsequent positive tests, some with accompanying PCR positivity. Many, but not all, had recurrent symptoms of varying severity after treatment. And for three, sequencing confirmed that the initial infecting virus was identical to the rebound isolate. This means that it's likely that this was truly rebound rather than reinfection, though because this strain was undoubtedly the common circulating strain at the time, It's not absolute proof. Altogether, I think that this experience is consistent with the anecdotal experiences of many physicians. Rebound certainly can happen, and it's common enough that many are encountering it.
0: And today we also published a report on these rebounds, but in this case, the ones seen in the original clinical trial of nirmatrilvir. What did we learn
1: from this study? This study looked at patients who were a little bit different from the case series that we just talked about. They received either nirmatrelvir or placebo as part of the original phase 2-3 licensure study that we published back in April. The trial enrolled unvaccinated individuals and showed a substantial decrease in their risk of hospitalization in the drug-treated group as compared to the placebo-treated group. They routinely performed swabs for PCR on day three, five, 10, and 14 of the trial and defined viral rebound as a half-log increase in viral RNA after the completion of the intervention. By this definition, they only saw rebound in 23 of 990 patients, a rate of 2.3%. This was pretty similar to the placebo group, where rebound occurred in 17 of 980 patients, or 1.7%. Thus, they conclude that there is a very similar rate of rebound with and without drug. They do note, however, that the study was done during a time when Delta was the predominant variant circulating. And of course, this group of higher risk, unvaccinated individuals is barely different from the vaccinated group that we just discussed in the case series. I think that these two reports
2: are fascinating in that clinically, we've all seen a lot of rebound or have heard about it anecdotally. And the initial letter, Eric, that you discussed sort of points out a case series of convenience, which resonates with a lot of what I've heard clinically and many of my colleagues have heard as well. While the systematic data from the initial Pfizer study suggests that it's relatively low at 1% to 2%, not what seems at least an order of magnitude higher in clinical practice. So it's difficult to understand and harmonize anecdotal experience from systematic data. I always prefer systematic data. It's tricky in terms of the systematic follow-up that's being done in the different domains and therefore to understand the true prevalence. The next question, after we establish what the prevalence is of rebound, is what does it actually mean? What are the implications for illness? And do people with rebound subsequently get severely ill? This seems not to be the case. What are the implications on transmissibility? This is largely not known. However, the viral load does seem to be lower during rebound, suggesting less transmissible. However, this requires proper study to understand the implications. So overall, it's a curious finding. It's an important finding that we are dealing with clinically, and it has substantial ramifications for how individuals return to work and pursue other activities that require
0: community engagement. So given all of that, how does this information help inform the decision to treat any individual patient? Steve, as we look at the totality
2: of what we're publishing this week and have been discussing, I think the importance of primary vaccination series is a consideration we've been discussing for well over a year. Boosting all those who could benefit from boosting with vaccination, I think, is really important as we try to control spread and severity of illness. Whether or not it controls spread is unclear, but the implications on an individual's risk of progressing are likely significant. And then how do we think about treatment, be it with monoclonal antibodies or the small molecule antivirals? And here, in those who have been previously infected or vaccinated, the benefits of treatment are less. So we need to think about those who are at higher risk for progression, such as our patients who have weakened immune systems, such as B-cell depletion, or some of the other immune suppressive medications that we routinely deploy clinically, or underlying conditions such as advanced diabetes or other immunosuppressing medical conditions. And then lastly, how we think about the circulating variants and whether it's uniform or regional variation as to which of the monoclonals are likely to be beneficial. So I think it's a combination of who's at risk, which variants are locally circulating, and therefore the risk of progression to significant illness come together for me to decide who should be treated. I don't think it needs to be everybody with COVID. I think it's more those at risk for severe illness and then targeting the virus that's circulating.
1: Yes, I agree with you, Lindsay. Nirmatrelvir has a very good track record for safety. Some people certainly don't like the taste, and that is an issue that has prevented a handful of people from taking it. But for the most part, people tolerate it extremely well. So the question is, what's the downside? And the rebound that we're hearing about is a kind of downside. Now, it's important to note that in the case series we presented, no one ended up hospitalized after this rebound, and that was certainly also true in the randomized control trial that was presented. So the rebound seems to be with relatively mild disease in all of the cases, at least that we've published thus far. But of course it's conceivable, and we don't really know this, that turning antigen positive again or PCR positive again correlates with shedding more virus, which correlates with infectivity for a more prolonged period of time. And that's certainly a downside for people. So it's a different kind of risk, but there is a little bit of a downside. And that means I wouldn't use this like water. I just wouldn't use it for everybody. For those with mild disease at low risk, it doesn't seem to make much sense right now. And
2: Eric, as you point out, the ritonavir, which is used as a PK booster for the nirmatrelvir, has many important drug interactions that can complicate care in our patients on polypharmacy. So absolutely, it's easy to use, but it has some important considerations when we deploy it in clinic that can have untoward consequences. So it's a careful balance. What's not as clear to me from the data we've seen is whether the rebound, as we categorize it, occurring often 10 days or so after the start of illness or five to 10 days after completing oral therapy, whether that's a property of the treatment with an antiviral or whether it's a property of the virus that we hadn't previously understood. And that's where the placebo versus active treatment groups in the randomized trial are very suggestive. It's just the anecdotal experience is so much more prevalent than 2%, which still requires further study for us to better understand those data.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.